You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to Strange Familiars. How are you doing tonight, Allison? I'm doing well. Before we get started with our show tonight, I have a very important announcement to make. Everyone has been waiting. The pre-orders are up for the Strange Familiars High Strangeness Tour shirts. You can find that at strangefamiliars.com. If you go there, you'll see one of the posts has the t-shirt. You can click on that. There are PayPal buttons to pre-order for the long sleeve t-shirt and we're doing hoodies as well if you want a hoodie especially you probably want to pre-order it we're not going to order many of those at all beyond what is pre-ordered we might order a couple in the popular sizes for etsy but hoodies are expensive to make so we're not going to order many beyond what is pre-ordered so if you want one in your size i would definitely hit that pre-order button and you can get special sizes Yes. Those go up, I think, to 3XL. The t-shirts go up to 5XL, the long-sleeve t-shirts. Now, we are going to order t-shirts, but again, those will probably just be in small through 3X, maybe. We'll order some 3Xs. But we're not going to do unlimited quantities. We're not going to keep printing them like we do the regular Strange Familiars t-shirt. We're going to order a quantity beyond what is pre-ordered. And that's probably going to be it, at least for a while. Maybe sometime down the road we'll reprint these. But for now, that's going to be it. So I, I've told everybody online, remember the keychains, remember the mugs, remember all those things. If you want one of these t-shirts, please pre-order to get one. That guarantees you will get one in your size. Get a t-shirt, get a hoodie, get both. We're keeping the pre-orders open till February 27th. That's a Sunday. We will remind everybody again on next week's show on Monday, February 28th. That's when I will be putting the order in to the printer. 
So you have that long. We will remind you again next week. I will remind everybody on Discord, on Facebook, on Instagram as well. I'll try to remind people a couple of times a week until we get there. But if you want one and you do want one, <laughs> pre-order it. I'm really, really happy with this design. And Sage from Forest Passage Printing, he kind of helped me get the design to where it is. It's my artwork. It's a Bigfoot in a cemetery on the back with orbs and a little fairy. And he's got his arm around kind of a new take on the, the Awoken tree. It's got a, a tree with an eye on it. And that has many of the different locations we've been on for our on-site episodes. So like, you know, Toad Road, Harry Springs, Site 7, Gazoo's Woods. All those places you hear us talk about listed on the back. It's a Strange Familiar's High Strangeness tour. It has an Easter egg as well, which you can read about if you go to strangefamiliars.com and, and look on the pre-order page. The right sleeve has our new, uh, what I call the doom metal kind of style logo for Strange Familiars. The left sleeve has the quote from Philip Smith that opens the show. So if you're wondering what he said, you can have it on your arm, just like you're cheating for a test in <laughs> school. You can just read down your arm. And on the front, it has an owl because owls. So I'm super excited about the shirt. I can't wait to get one for myself. Long sleeve shirts, they were always like the cream. Right? <laughs> yes. I could probably do a whole episode about favorite long sleeve shirts. I could, favorite t-shirts in general. Favorite t-shirts. Yeah. yeah, we could do a, a nostalgia episode on that for sure. I wasn't aiming for these to be part of the episode 300 celebration, but they came at a good time. And I feel like yeah, yeah, yeah. here we are approaching episode 300. We have this really cool t-shirt. Kind of celebrates what we do at Strange Familiars. Some of our favorite shows are those on-site episodes. So again, it's at strangefamiliars.com. And you look for the T-shirt, you can click on that, and they'll have the pre-order options there. They're all PayPal buttons, drop-down menus with different sizes. Speaking of episode 300, that is the Witch Cloud, of course, which, because we're time-traveling magicians, even though we're not at episode 300 yet, it's already available. You can get it at Bandcamp, or you can get it at our Etsy shop. The Witch Cloud is about two bridges in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. So we thought it would be fun... If leading up to episode 300, we did a bunch of episodes that are Gettysburg-centric. I don't think every episode is going to be fully about Gettysburg, but I think every episode is going to have a Gettysburg component. Magical is maybe um, the wrong descriptive term for Gettysburg, but I feel like it's hmm, wondrous. Like uh, I've loved Gettysburg since I was little. It was always like for people who live somewhere close to it, it was always like a special treat. Like it was oh, yeah. far enough away where it felt like you were going somewhere, but it was actually pretty close to <laughs> Yeah, I would often blow off college and go to Gettysburg for and the that's, day. And that's a little bit of a haul. Yeah. I mean, I was going to college in Maryland, but uh, no, it was worth the trip. I've always loved Gettysburg. It isn't like anywhere else I've ever been, even other Civil War battlefields and historical places. I feel like it has... Um, and this is me saying this. It's got its own vibes. It does. That was really one of does. the first places where um, this is going to date it pre-digital cameras. We were taking photographs. Yeah, we were taking photographs in one of the areas, and I'm not sure where it was right now. It was. I could drive to it, but I can't name it. Like yeah. if I looked on a map, I I would be able to point it out. And we were just taking photos into the darkness with um, disposable cameras, mm-hmm. and I really got the. Was it me that I got like the weird orbs the one time? Yeah, they were in the woods too. Yeah, and it was totally dark. So we were just taking photos into the night and there was nothing to reflect upon. No, no. Pitch black. And it was just illuminated by that just brief moment of a flash. 
Another time there, we were in Devil's Den. We did have a digital camera, and I turned on the digital camera, and it it literally just turned itself off, shut down, done, mm-hmm. and wouldn't turn back on. And you know, later we got to a different area. I hit the power button; it came on fine. So it's the only other place that reminds me of it is like Hex Hollow, in that there is such a difference between day and night there. Mm-hmm. During the day, it's like you know, it's really almost like a theme park. It's like a historical theme park. Yeah. And at night, I really feel like, man, this strange familiar is just creeping in. But <laughs> I really feel like it's the time when you're the closest to history and the closest to that sort of darkness. Yeah. I always tell people, go during the day and see the battlefield and see the monuments and take the tours because it's it's amazing. The preservation of history there, they formed the park in 18... 18- I want to say 95. So, yeah. But they started work on it like really quickly. Right away. You yeah, can like, read the articles in the paper where they're like, they knew in their head, like, we have to preserve this. Mm-hmm. And so the, the the articles in the Gettysburg Papers around the time, they already knew. And it's not exploitive. It's a very kind of respectful history, I think, for the most part. Mm-hmm. So go during the day and absorb the history, but stay into the night mm-hmm. and feel that change. Because it's it, you really do. It's a different place at night, and you can see why the ghost tours do so well over there. It definitely has a mood. It does. Uh, it does. Yeah, I think I would love to do an episode one time about like our favorite Gettysburg ghost stories because there's so many sort of classic ones. They're some of the first sort of regional ghost stories I think I probably ever heard. Yeah, I'm looking for a place in Gettysburg that's a home for my books. Not just people's individual homes, like a place to sell them. <laughs> yeah, yes. And I'm, I'm hoping to find that. I really would like that. My idea is um, to have a place for my books and maybe once a month during the warm months do a ghost tour or something. I would love that because I think Gettysburg's just a wonderful place for that. But we're not here to talk about Gettysburg ghosts tonight. Not exactly. Tonight we're going to be talking about the ghoul of Gettysburg. We'll see what Tim names this show, but I have been lobbying hard for Ghoul's Night Out. <laughs> <laughs> he's not going to. If, he's he's yeah, not going to. If I was 19, I'd be like, I would sign off on that. But I, I mean, there's a part of me that's going to be 14 forever, and that part of me right now is leaning in hard to Ghoul's <laughs> Night Out. Are you equating yourself at age 14 with me at 19? Absolutely. Yeah, I think you're probably about right. Honestly, maturity levels there. Mm-hmm. This interesting figure comes up sometimes when people are talking about stranger elements of the battle. Ghoul of Gettysburg. There's a photo of him, and you said, you know, of course you can't diagnose him. He's long gone. But by looking at him, he looks like some people that you've come across from circus sideshows that have a certain condition. Mm -hmm. And that is? Acromegaly, which hopefully I'm saying correctly. (laughs) What condition is that? So we'll put a picture of the ghoul of Gettysburg up with the show so people will know. Maybe I'll use it for the show icon. Yeah, and quite obviously, I'm not a doctor. I'm only basing this on the fact that he does tend to look like other people within the circus who have this condition. Right. It's responsible for uh, forms of giantism, like Andre the Giant. Okay. But it's not exclusively that. So you don't not exclusively have giantism, but it does cause distortions in uh, facial features 
and hands. And so there's some fairly famous people who you can see before they have the condition and afterwards to know that it's uh, not a congenital. It's something that typically happens later in life. Mm. There's a, a famous female performer who her last name was Bevan. It was after she had children. And then I believe it's a uh, like a benign pituitary tumor that's causing mm. the problem. But it's a dysfunction of the pituitary. Some doctor listening right now is, is saying, she's butchering it. She's yeah, butchering you've it. got it all wrong. You've got it all wrong. We're doing right? our best. We're doing our best with our limited medical knowledge. There is something obviously different about this man. Let's just By say appearance, it. just By looking appearance at him. Alone. Yeah. Yeah. Something that to untrained eyes, and actually that condition was not even recognized as such till probably decades later. Oh, okay. Who was this ghoul? And we'll get to why he was called the ghoul of Gettysburg in a bit. He appeared on a stereo view card that has a copyright date of 1886. Was that a Tipton card? Yeah, Tipton and Mumper are the probably and Tyson are the the most common Civil War era Gettysburg centric photographers. But you say looking at the stereo view and looking at the background, it looks like it came from an older picture. I think it came from a carte de visite from the time of the Civil War era. So he's definitely posed in a studio. You can even see in one of the more clearer versions of it, you can see the posing stand. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. That's something that you wouldn't see by the time the 1880s rolled around. So there's probably a CDV also, I'm guessing, Mm -hmm. of this person. And they probably sold it as a curiosity the way they sold pictures of hermits and so forth at the time. Or like album filler. There were a lot of presidential and political album filler as, as well as celebrities. And even... The same photographers who did those celebrities and political figures also did the very earliest sideshow and circus imagery. So the caption on this stereo view card in 1886 says, A battlefield vulture, Godfer by name, one of those inhuman creatures who follow in the wake of armies, robbing the field of blankets, clothing, and turning the pockets of the dead. So if we're to take the caption at its word... There were people who did this. Oh, yeah. they. I mean, they came in pretty much even before everyone was dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People who went from battlefield to battlefield. Yeah. And just got whatever they could from the corpses. But what do we know about Godfrey? He has this unusual appearance. He also looks very um, impoverished in the photo. Yeah. he He's definitely not dressed up. Look up. So in this era, it was a very special thing to have your photograph taken. So people usually wore their best. Yeah, even when it got to be more of a um, economical decision to get your photo taken, people still weren't like just rolling in the same way you would in candid pictures today. Right, but he definitely looks like he's in impoverished sort of clothing or workman's clothing. Or yeah, something. there should appear to be stains on his um, thighs, which some people say that it might be because of work he did, either um, bundling things or pulling things close to him. I don't know what exactly he did, or, or maybe just where, generally. Godfrey is an unusual name. You thought that maybe it might have been Godfrey? Mm-hmm. Or also short for, like, Godforsaken. Mm, I didn't even think about that. But if that was their actual name, you should be able to find records of him around Gettysburg from the time. I didn't find anything. Yeah. He should come up somewhere else. Yeah, why just the last name? Why 
If that's his last name. Yeah, if that's... Yeah. Maybe he's like Cher. He just has the one name. He's like <laughs> Cher, Madonna, Godfrey. Yeah. I doubt he would be taken for anyone else in town. Everyone probably knew who he was if he was local. If he was local, yeah. Yeah, and we'll hear in an upcoming episode, there were articles about just characters about town in mm-hmm. Gettysburg. And most of these newspapers at the time, they had space to fill. Yeah. If there was a character about town, they'd, they'd write about him. Yeah, we've covered some before, some eccentric people who, you know, either were hermits or wore badges or dressed in an eccentric manner, and it all made the news. Right. Was he really a ghoul? That's the question. And we'll come back to that because I have some theories. Who took the picture? We don't know conclusively, but I have a theory. The earliest photographer with an established studio in Gettysburg was a man named Samuel Weaver. So he had an amber-type gallery in the 50s. 1850s in Gettysburg. Just to review quickly, the general format, history of photography, starting with daguerreotype. Yep. And just just a quick explanation. So daguerreotype is... Uh, a, a mirrored reflection when you hold it um, roughly 1849 to 1860. And that's a direct positive. I mean, 1839 to 1860. Right, right onto the surface of, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, of the, the mirrored surface. It was. And amb- amber type is almost like a... Um, it would look like a glass negative in some respects. So you have to put a something behind it to make it a positive. So after daguerreotype comes ambrotype, then what we call tintype, which is... The same process as an ambrotype, but just on iron on iron. of glass. So they, they didn't need the black backing. Mm-hmm. It, essentially, the tin or the iron yeah, gave, all in one. gave it the, the backing. Then we come to paper photography. So the earliest paper photography was CDV. Is that... Well, I mean, they're in America. Let's count okay. that because okay. there are paper common numbers. common formats. Common formats in America, yeah. The the earliest common format was CDV, and that happened kind of in the midst of the Civil War, right? The, yeah, the CDV comes. Mm-hmm. Paper photography happens. So you, the Civil War starts off with a lot of tin types of soldiers and people from the time, mm-hmm. and then as the war progresses, you get these CDV images. You start getting paper mm-hmm. images of them. So you can have both, and people were doing both simultaneously. Yep. There's no negative for a tintype, though. No. It's a one of a kind. It is what it is. So CDVs come, and now we're talking about negatives, right? Mm -hmm. And they can save those, and they can print a bunch of them. Yeah, and at later times. and So this is where um, cardamania starts, which is like the craze for collecting celebrities Mm. and and famous people. Then they proceed to other formats, larger formats Mm -hmm. and, and so forth. But we'll stop at CDV. So for this to be on a stereo view, you know, 20 years later, mm-hmm. there would need to be a negative. Yeah. That's your primary reason or one of your primary reasons for thinking this is a, was a CDV originally, this photo. It just looks like the formatting of, of that era mm-hmm. photograph. Plus, if, if he was found on the battlefield robbing graves during the Civil War, that's probably the time that his photo was taken, I would imagine. Right. So how would have Tipton gotten access if Samuel Weaver took the photo, and we don't know, mm-hmm. but because Tipton did, he was around at the Civil War, right? Mm-hmm. During the Civil War, and he did take some Civil War images himself. Well, the battlefield. Yeah, copyright was a weird thing back then. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like very few things were copywritten, and there was a lot of copying of other photographers' work. Mm-hmm. He could have sold them. His son Samuel Weaver's sons took over the business later on. He could have sold them to him when they were doing large collections of work. It could have been an itinerant or just traveling photographer. It could have been one of Brady's men who was on the battlefield who took the picture as well. That's a 
distinct possibility, but there's one major reason why I think it might have been Samuel Weaver. And that is? He was also responsible for reinterring all of the Union soldiers that died on the battlefield. Ah, so he might have he come was on into the contact bat- with this Godfer actually on the battlefield, if, yeah. if he was doing what the Stereview card said. Yeah, so while there was some money in photography, there was a lot more money in Gettysburg after the battle in reinterring bodies. Yeah. We have some notes on Gettysburg at the time of the battle. The population of Gettysburg at the time was 2,400. Now, they're saying in some of the historical articles that, you know, that was a big town at that time. But it's, if you think of towns now at 2,400, I mean, just by our standards now, that's a, that's a little town. That's a very little town, yeah. Yeah. You know, again, we're looking at it through a modern lens. And I'm not sure, what, like, what the confines of Gettysburg they're considering. I don't think that was 2,400 in the town proper. Just, yeah, probably the town and the surrounding areas, yeah. So keep in mind that number. 2,400 was the the population of the town. In the battle, there were between 3,000 and 5,000 horses killed. That's just horses. Yeah, now imagine the cleanup efforts a few days after the war when a bunch of, in July, a bunch of bloated dead horses are lying all over your neighborhood. Mm Mm-hmm. When I played banjo on the steam into history train that runs through York County, one of the areas the train would go through is a town called Railroad. And somewhere around Railroad, there was a rendering plant at the time of the Civil War where they would, you know, they render dead animals. And they said that they sent people over to Gettysburg to just grab horses and bring them back. I guess they had plenty to choose from. I mean, it's, you know. How do you lift up? A dead horse, a I'm, dead bloated horse. Yeah, I don't know. And then make that journey. It's not a one-man job, that's for I sure. I mean, the journey back to York from Gettysburg now is, you know, like roughly 45 minutes to an hour. Yeah, in a car, yeah. In a car. You imagine how long that took. In on the rough sun, roads. On with, rough roads. With a wagon, yeah. Bumping up and down with a bloated dead horse on your... <laughs> probably, and they probably didn't just go over for one. I'm sure they yeah. tried to fill the wagon up with as many as they could. I mean, one of the most disturbing things I heard is about Gettysburg in relation to where we live is that you could smell it, which isn't a huge shock with that many dead people that you could smell the battle here yeah. for a long time. You could smell the rotting in York. There are vultures, they say, that still come to Gettysburg every year starting in July. The battle happened around July, July, 4th. July 4th, around that time. And they say still... Because of this sort of genetic, gen- genetic memory, memory, these vultures just descend upon Gettysburg every year at that time because it was it was such a feast, as you can imagine. That was just horses, three to 5,000 horses. The North has pretty good records as far as men lost. 3,155 men killed from the North. Remember, the population of Gettysburg is 2,400. So we already have more dead, more de- dead people than alive people. Just from the north. Mm-hmm. 14,529 wounded, 5,365 captured or missing. The south estimated losses, and I think this is wounded, killed, and missing combined for them. They, they, the records just aren't as good for the south. Between twenty three and 25,000. Yeah, I always kind of keep the number of about 50,000 people to, like, sort of directly affected by this very short period of time. The population was 2,400. What does a little town in the 1860s 
do with that many dead people just everywhere around? How do you deal with that? It's not like FEMA is going to come rolling in and there's going to be a National Guard. It's like it's up to the people that live there to make their town livable again. Yeah. Speaking of, we do have records. We, we have the archives for several Gettysburg newspapers, not just once, several Gettysburg newspapers from the time. I couldn't find any mention of this. You is, start to see mentions of um, when there's preparations for the National Cemetery. Yeah, but as far as dealing with the dead or the stench that must have been overwhelming. We drive by a garbage dump when it's hot yeah. in the summer, and, and it's unbearable. There's no mention of dealing with this in the paper, and I can only think that they were just like, you know what? We all know it's here. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> Let's just, why dwell on it? <laughs> yeah, why write about it, too? That's an incredible... Like, that. those numbers, again, when you think about the population of the town, those numbers are stunning. Mm -hmm. And they have to deal with that. So the governor hired Samuel Weaver to bury the bodies. He was kind of in charge of it. And he took his job very seriously. Yeah, so this is a quote from the time, right? This is mm -hmm. from, from some article from the time. There was not a grave permitted to be opened or a body searched unless I was present. I was inflexible in enforcing this rule and here can say with the greatest satisfaction to myself and to the friends of the soldiers that I saw every body taken out of its temporary resting place and all the pockets carefully searched. And when the grave was not marked, I examined all the clothing and everything about the body and all the hair and the particles of bone carefully placed in the coffin. And if there was a headboard, I required it to be at once nailed to the coffin. And at the same time, I wrote the name, company, and regiment of the soldier on the coffin and numbered the coffin and entered in my book the same endorsement. So there's actually a photograph of him standing uh, next to an open grave. He's holding the little book. <laughs> <laughs> wow. He really thought of it as... He took it very seriously. Mm -hmm. Now, you said something about how he was, he was a little more dedicated to the bodies of the North than the South. Oh, I mean, yeah, the war was still going on. So if there was any time that they found someone or, or um, dug someone up and they were Confederate the dirt went right back on top of them. They didn't have time for that. Mm. And it wasn't actually till his son took over that job because some of the um, women's organization from the Confederacy paid to have their sons uh -huh. uh, shipped back home. But that didn't happen till years and years later. Wow. And so when that happened, they were, I mean, you really aren't really dealing with many remains at that point that could be easily identified. Yeah. He was absolutely fundamentally determined to make sure every Union soldier found a, a home, either back with its family or in the newly um, so designated cemetery. Weaver didn't do this alone. No, you couldn't. As yeah, you can it's, see. it's not a one-man job. And so he hired a man named Basil Biggs, who is, when we do some more episodes on the Underground Railroad, we can talk a little bit more about Basil Biggs, but he's an amazing figure. Uh, just from the Underground Railroad. He was born free in Maryland and was a vet in Gettysburg during the time of the war. A free... Free black man. Mm -hmm. Had rented a house which was commandeered by the Confederates. His dining room became an amputation room and his house became a field hospital. In Gettysburg. In he Gettysburg. this house, yeah. A lot of the black population left for very obvious reasons at this time because with a bunch of Confederates coming through... As you would. As sure. you would. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would probably leave regardless of my race, but especially if I were black at the time. So he hired a group of men, predominantly black men who had stayed in Gettysburg, and they were the ones that did the bulk of the work. They were paid, I see your note here, they were paid $1.25 a body. Yeah, well, Basil Biggs was paid, yeah, $1.25. He actually, I mean, 
the odd positive note to this is that he was able to buy his own farm outright then from the money he he was renting previously and he was able to buy his own farm outright which then served as uh, continuing work within the underground railroad wow it's not surprising to me that this really horrible work fell upon the most needy of people to do yeah yeah and it's kind of the sad history of the united states but samuel weaver was absolutely dedicated to making sure that these soldiers found a proper burial. You know, like you said, this is probably where Samuel Weaver ran into this god for, if mm-hmm. the story is true. If the, the story is true. If the story is true. And the CDV, possibly taken by Weaver or his sons, we already mentioned which fo- photographers that we know were there. There were a lot. And like you said, there were probably itinerant photographers as well. But the question is, you know, this is also the time of Barnum mm. and weaving a good story and yellow journalism and so forth. Was Godfrey really a ghoul mm-hmm. or a vulture or did he just look weird? Yeah. Yeah, I wonder. And was it easier to say, if you let me take your picture, you won't be prosecuted for this. Or if you let me take your picture, I'll give you some money or... Yeah, we can sell them. Did he know how to read? Did he even know the story that was being told about him? Yeah, that's entirely plausible that I mean, I think at this period of time, you know, it's a time when people assume that there are um, people that look a little different might be the ones responsible for ghoulish acts when there were, you know, marauding bands of people that just followed in the wake of the battles and just were completely opportunistic. There were also what was known as resurrectionists at the time. Anatomists. Or resurrection men, I saw them. Yeah, resurrection men. Saw them. Medical men. Yeah. And um, these were of- people that were securing human bodies for medical schools. Mm-hmm. But there were actual ghouls. Uh, the definition of a ghoul is usually someone who's, who's eating the dead. Or having a, some other untoward relationship with a body. So let's leave Gettysburg and go to France. Is that happening tonight? I don't even have my passport right <laughs> Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money at This is a little bit about another ghoul from the 1800s. This one appears to be a true ghoul from France. I'm going to read a little passage from a book called Terror by Night by Bernard J. Herwood. One of the most chilling cases of ghoulism on record took place not in the Middle East, but in France in the year 1847. For some time, cemeteries in the vicinity of Paris had been desecrated periodically in a particularly horrible manner. Graves had been dug up, coffins were broken into, and bodies were stripped of their cerements. Most ghastly of all, they were found to have been bitten, gnawed on, and chewed. In some cases, whole chunks had been completely eaten away. All of Paris was in an uproar. 
Nothing like this had ever happened before. To make matters worse, there was not a single clue as to the identity of the ghoulish ravager responsible for these terrible acts. At first, caretakers of the cemeteries were under suspicion, then the police, and finally the families of the deceased. But soon all suspects were cleared, and the authorities were as baffled as ever. Expert medical men were called, and their unanimous opinion was that the teeth marks on the violated corpses were unmistakably human. This only added to the mystery and served to infuriate the public more than ever. Guards were doubled, and all cemeteries were kept under the strictest surveillance. On several occasions, reports came to police headquarters that a figure, half-human, half-animal, had vaulted the walls and crept silently from tomb to tomb. Sounds a bit like our friend Springheel Jack, doesn't it? That's what I was thinking, the vaulting portion of it. There were arrests from time to time, but in each case, the suspects were released for lack of evidence. And in spite of the public clamor, the police were not nearer to a solution than when the horrible epidemic first broke out. For a short time, the nocturnal terror ceased. Then one day, following the funeral of a young girl, the fiend struck again. One morning after the funeral, the grave was found to have been dug up, the coffin broken open, and the body of the child half-eaten. Once again, with renewed vigor, the public cried out for vengeance. The girl's father was arrested, but the grief-stricken man's innocence was proven at once, and he was released. Now a whole new outbreak of these desecrations began, in spite of the most rigid precautions. Paris was rife with rumors that this was the work of supernatural forces, for the cemetery was completely surrounded by high walls, and the only entrance was through the gates, which were kept locked at all times. Finally, there appeared a break in the case. At a certain spot on the wall, definite signs were discovered, which led the police to believe that it had been climbed frequently and recently. Immediately, a trap was set, consisting of wires and explosives. As an extra measure, a squad of detectives was assigned to watch the spot after dark. On the first night, shortly after 12, a loud noise shattered the silence. The trap had worked. Immediately, the detectives rushed into the open, but they were too late. In the darkness, they saw what appeared to be the figure of a man scrambling up the wall with the nimbleness of an acrobat. They fired several shots, but in an instant he was gone. They had not been entirely unsuccessful, however, for upon closer investigation, they discovered a trail of blood and pieces of a torn army uniform. Now they had something tangible. Not only was the object of their search human, he was a soldier, and he was obviously wounded. It was a slim clue at best, but it was more than anything they had encountered before. After a few days, it was discovered that a soldier, a Sergeant Bertrand, had been wounded and hospitalized on the very night of the shooting at the cemetery. The matter was investigated at once, and as quickly as that, the mystery was solved. Not only did Bertrand confess, he went into the minutest of details. He claimed that he was driven by a force beyond his control, and that on occasion, he cited a specific instance, he had dug up and gnawed upon as many as 15 bodies. What amazed his interrogators the most was that he never used any tools, but instead dug up the graves with his bare hands and did the same when he ripped open the coffins. He admitted to experiencing extreme pleasure during the course of his necrophagic feasts, a condition which we know today is linked to a warped sexual drive. This book was written in the 60s. Invariably, said Bertrand, when his nocturnal repasts were finished, he went home and fell into a deep sleep during which he experienced horrible nightmares. In describing his feelings, he said, Horrible desires seized me. My head throbbed. My heart palpitated. At the conclusion of the investigation, Bertrand was found by the medical examiners to be sane, which sounds utterly fantastic today. 
and he was sentenced to a mere one year's imprisonment. After his release, he was never heard from again, so it can be assumed that either he was cured of his hideous compulsion or infinitely more successful in covering up his tracks. As we can see from the facts, there was nothing even bordering on the supernatural in Bertrand's case, yet he was as much a ghoul as the most fanciful demon ever to grace the pages of the Arabian Nights. He was called a vampire, right? Yes, in other articles you found they called him a vampire. And we'll speak in um, coded language in case you have uh, people who might not want to hear the more hideous details. Yeah, yeah. There was another article. The only article I could find, it's reprinted in a bunch of papers, but the only article I could find in English about him from the 1800s was in 1874. So this is from the Chicago Tribune, June 21st, 1874. And I give it to Allison because it's small print. (laughs) I'm going to take my glasses off to read it. (laughs) Some years ago, there was a terrible uproar in the cemeteries of Paris. Armed guards patrolled them every night, endeavoring in vain to discover a mysterious being almost unseen, but whose passage left marks as fearful as they were extraordinary. The sanctity of the grave had been violated, and the bodies of the dead, strangely torn and disfigured, had been dragged some distance and left lying in the walks. Facts still more hideous and which will not bear recital filled with horror the keepers of the cemetery on the mornings of the 15th of November and the 12th of December. The most incredible rumors were circulated in Paris. The legend went on magnifying as it was repeated until it was shudderingly whispered by knowing ones that the cemeteries were haunted by a vampire who dug up the dead at night and feasted upon the decaying flesh. Every means that could be suggested to increase vigilance and render it effective was tried. Policemen were added to the guards, and savage dogs let loose in the cemeteries every night. The men saw nothing. The dogs did not bark. Yet one morning, eleven bodies were found to have been exhumed, cut to pieces, and scattered over a large area of the ground, pieces of flesh being even found hanging, hideous trophies on the limbs of the trees. These monstrous doings now seemed confined to the cemetery at Montparnasse. I can never say that correctly, so excuse me for that. (laughs) An infernal machine was then placed there, a small mortar loaded with all sort of projectiles and to whose trigger numerous wires were connected, diverging in all directions. In the night of the 15th of March, the magazine was heard to explode, and the next day it was ascertained that a sergeant major of infantry named Francis Bertrand had sought admittance into the hospital of the Val de Grasse having received some strange-looking wounds in the back. The vampire was caught. Bertrand was tried by a military court. He bore a good name in his regiment and was accounted a man of Gentile disposition and an excellent soldier. He was not ignorant, having followed a course of studies in a seminary. Far from attempting to deny the charge brought against him, he confessed everything with sincere candor and humility. When seized with his frenzy, he said, he would escape from the barracks and run to the cemetery whose wall he would clear with one bound. He knew that he had set up an infernal machine. He would run to it and kick it over without provoking an explosion. The dogs ran at him, but he marched upon them and they slunked away, cowed and silent. Had he reached that inexplicable superhuman power, not uncommon in certain nervous mental affections, his strength passed all that can be imagined. With nothing but his hands, he would dig the grave open, break the coffin, and tear to pieces the corpse which he sometimes also hacked with his sword. Was this all? No, but there are acts so atrocious that the pen refuses to portray them. This demoniac, for he seemed more like a man possessed of an evil spirit, 
as certain hours than a madman having rational spells, committing those unaccountable atrocities, would hasten away from the place he had desecrated and seeking shelter anywhere in a ditch on the margin of a river exposed to the rain or the snow fell into a cataleptic sleep during which he retained the subconsciousness of what was going on around him. After these fits, he felt worn and bruised for several days, and he was a monomaniac, obeying an irresistible impulse and suffering, very likely, from larval epilepsy. The court sentenced him to one year's imprisonment, the maximum of the penalty provided by the penal code. Bertrand, the ghoul, is still alive. He is now perfectly cured of this hideous disease and is cited as a model of gentleness, propriety, and behavior. Now, in various updates on his post-incarceration, we've seen... One who said that he died very quickly afterward. Committed suicide. He committed suicide. The reality of it is he lived close to 25 years more, got married and had several children. (laughs) Yeah, so... There's not a lot of background research you can do at that time period, I'm guessing. Like, it's not like you can't go on and do a little criminal search. Right. Right. Also, I think there was a lot of people who were just like, well, he had to have been so horrified with his past. If he was a model citizen from that point on, Mm -hmm. he had to have been so horrified with what he did that he killed himself. What we do know about Francois Bertrand is that he was born October 29th, 1823. He died February 25th, 1878. He later became a clerk, a mailman, and a lighthouse keeper. Those all seem like the kind of positions that someone might hold that were... <laughs> I asked if we knew who Van Gogh's mailman was, his famous painting. So I thought it would be quite amazing if, if it was this guy. This guy was Van Gogh's mailman. I have socks of Van Gogh's mailman. I know it's one of your favorites. Yeah, that's my favorite Van Gogh. This is a great painting. I love that painting. Bertrand was married in 1856 and, as you said, had children. Now, we're alluding to some things he did besides the... uh... Yes, there was more that that was a little too much, I think, for the Victorian sensibilities to report on at the time. Also, being of the time period, his sentence seems very light for his crimes. Yes, But things we would think of as assaults in the common era of people who are alive were not applicable to dead people. At that time. At that time. Yeah. Yeah. Those were just different. And yeah, I mean, we're we're dancing around necrophilia here is what we're dancing around. And we're not going to get into any detail detail whatsoever, but that was also going on. We'll just say that. There's another article we wanted to read from the London Lancet, 1849. This is an article entitled Extraordinary Madness. Physiological pathologists have of late been as much on the alert in France concerning the case of a sergeant of the line as they have been in this country concerning Miss Nottage. And I didn't look up what that case is, but I'm sure it's fascinating. <laughs> the two cases bear, however, no analogy to each other. Religious monomania is not rare, but the derangement of the mind lending to the frightful and disgusting acts of Sergeant Bertrand is, as far as we can remember, perfectly unique in the annals of mental alienation. His mania consisted in exhuming the dead and taking pleasure in mutilating the corpses, but shocking to relate, there was an erotic tendency mixed up with these horrible deeds, and he took especial delight in raising the corpses of females and satisfying his unnatural appetites upon their putrefying remains. 
That is a way with words right there. I mean, how can you? It's it's like sort of like wonderfully baroque, yeah. language I to mean, describe the most hideous it's thing a possible. Horrible thing, <laughs> it, uh, a beautiful sentence written about an absolutely horrible thing. Yeah, it's kind of why I love Nabokov. <laughs> <laughs> from the trial, which lately took place in Paris before a court martial, and from the confession written by himself, we learn that this unfortunate individual is twenty five years of age. He first studied for the church, but suddenly enlisted and by his good conduct obtained the rank of sergeant. When young, he was rather of a sullen and melancholy disposition, but nothing positively pointing to the derangement was then observed. His hideous propensities appeared only in February of 1847, when they were excited by the sight of a grave left unfilled after internment, the diggers having been compelled to desist by a heavy shower of rain. He then struck the corpse, which he had exhumed with the tools left by the grave with the utmost fury, and being interrupted, fled to a neighboring wood, where, according to him, he remained for three hours in a state of perfect insensibility, after having been most violently excited. From this time of the 15th of March, 1849, this wretched man, desecrated burying places eight or ten times, both by day and night, regardless of the severity of the weather, the dangers he was encountering on the part of the keepers, and the difficulties he had to surmount. By the aid of his small sword, he used to raise eight or ten corpses in a single night, and he adds that he opened many graves and refilled them again with no assistance but his hands. He had not the courage of telling the whole truth in his written declaration, but he confessed to his medical attendant the most repulsive part of this awful tale, his preference for the remains of females, and his hideous propensity of satisfying desires upon them. He was wounded when getting over the wall of the cemetery in Paris, brought to the hospital, and thus was unveiled this unheard-of train of disgusting acts. The court-martial have not taken that view of the case which at first sight would have looked the most rational, and waiving altogether the possibility of monomania having impelled the man to these hideous deeds, they looked upon the offense as a misdemeanor and condemned him to one year's imprisonment. Different opinions have been given in the medical journals as to which of the two kinds of mania exhibited was the first in existence, the destructive or the erotic. Monsieur Marchal, the sergeant's medical attendant, thinks the destructive prevailed. But a well-known mental pathologist maintains that the second was, on the contrary, the strongest, and only mania. The various circumstances mentioned by each of these gentlemen to strengthen their respective positions merely rest on the prisoner's own declaration, so that it would appear that no very strong case can be made on either side. Indeed, the whole series of these shocking occurrences might well be called into question, as it seems that no direct and conclusive evidence has been brought forth besides the man's own account. But assuming the latter is true, the existence of monomania can hardly be doubted when we consider that a natural instinct was entirely set aside, that there was not the slightest prospect of gain, that the wish of visiting churchyards returned almost periodically, and that the dangers incurred were entirely disregarded, that none of the vices which generally accompany depravity were present, there was, besides a melancholy disposition, a total insensibility to the agency of physical agents, such as cold and rain, during the paroxysm, and an extraordinary amount of muscular and nervous energy in the accomplishment of the acts. All these considerations would tend to prove that this man was irresistibly impelled to such unheard-of abominations. This disgusting case recalls at once that form of mental aberration which reigned so extensively about a century and a half ago in the north of Europe and known under the name of vampirism. It will be recollected that vampires were suffering under a sort of nocturnal delirium, which was often extended to the waking hours during which they believed that certain dead persons were rising from their graves to come and draw their blood. Hence arose a desire for revenge, and burial places were disgracefully desecrated. Bertrand's case seems the very reverse of this, 
For here we see not the dead rising to torment the living, but a man disturbing the peace of cemeteries in the most horrible manner imaginable. The state that Bertrand admits that he had after he committed these horrible acts is very much akin to some of these serial killers. You hear Mm -hmm. them talk about their crimes. And by, you know, modern mental health standards, it seems that these people are not often cured, right? Mm-hmm. But he did seem to go on to live this, by all accounts, normal life with a wife Can and kids. Can you just have one period of time where you just go into cemeteries and dig them up and eat people? And yeah, I don't know. And you just kind of like I, fall back into... Or did he, like they said, did he just get better at covering his tracks? And they said in the other... Quite literally. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they keep alluding to his melancholy disposition, but like, I feel like a lot of people have a melancholy disposition that doesn't exactly lead to this. Also, who's the wife? You know? You gotta be real forgiving. Right? Yeah. I feel like there, like, within our relationship, there are (laughs) too many, (laughs) too many absolute, like, this is like a, like, we've drawn a line in the sand. Mm -hmm. That might be one. Yeah, I would hope so. Yeah. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say that's that's a line. I'd still for write me. you letters. I tell you that. Oh, that'd be nice. <laughs> be very nice. But yeah, yeah, I, w- I would hope that would be a line. Uh, I'd visit it's occasionally. A, it's a very unpleasant topic. The, it is an unpleasant topic. Actual ghoulism. I mean, a, a, the, I don't think I think it's unfair to call God for a ghoul. Yeah, or to even allude to his being anywhere like this other guy. Yeah, but. maybe you know, maybe this was a, an impoverished guy. He had you know hard to get a job. When you look like that, especially back then. I'll tell you, this is another example as I was researching this. I had heard before that uh, the character of Shrek was based on a real man. Mm -hmm. It's a man with a similar condition named uh, Maurice Tillett, I think, or Tillet. This is how we used to treat people. (laughs) Not that we are that much more advanced now, but uh, this idea that your physical appearance was somehow indicative of your personality right, trait. Right, yeah. I would like to think that some of that is past. I hope. I think some has, you mm-hmm. know, certainly. But we do fear but what we don't know. And exactly. I, and I think that there was an element of that with Godfrey. Now, maybe he couldn't get a job, and maybe he was just surviving. And mm-hmm. maybe he was taking stuff off the battlefield. Mm-hmm. We don't know. But there were certainly a lot of able-bodied, quote-unquote, normal-looking people who were doing the exact same thing. Exactly. And I think... I feel like it's unfair to call him a ghoul. A ghoul, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I, the, I would like to know the, the, the full story of him. And, and it's just, you know, as best as we could find, it's not out there. Mm-hmm. I think, I think like, you know, I'm so hopeful about all these stories. Like, I, I feel like we're going to solve certain murders and we're going right. <laughs> to eventually. It's, but there, there is an element of eventually things just sort of come to light. I think a lot of things, it's not out of the realm of possibility of figuring this out. Do I want to spend three months searching specifically just this area? Probably not. I have some other things to do. But Speaking of finding things, after research, next episode, I went to Gettysburg on a needle in a haystack search. John came with me. And in this very, very strange familiar's twist on the day, we found what we were looking for. I think it's really neat. I mean, I think it just puts a really neat twist on an episode I was excited about doing anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's going to be, it's a combination of, you know, this kind of research and on-site research for next week's episode. And I'm so excited about it. Everybody will hear about it next week. But talking about that, where you just, sometimes you do solve it. 
you know, sometimes you do find what you're looking for with this research. Yeah, or sometimes I've, you know, come upon something three years later that would have been really helpful Mm -hmm. to something I was researching. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Even, uh, you know, last night when we accidentally found a marriage record for somebody that you were looking for. The same person that we're going to be talking about next week. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was like just sort of purely... Yeah, I asked you the next day, I was like, how did you find that? Because I had been doing research on this person Uh, basically while you were researching researching Godfer and doing this episode. I was doing research on this person for the, the following episode and didn't find this at all. Mm-hmm. And you, you found this. And I was like, how did you find this marriage license? I didn't know. And you just, you just said, I just stumbled on it. And that's uh, some people say that too about like, how do you find certain photos? And the only thing I can say is like, just look. Yeah. It's the only way you find anything. You just look and look and look and look and look and look and look. Well, my money is on God for just being a guy with an unfortunate medical condition that made him look different and not a ghoul. What's your feelings? Absolutely. Same. same. I think he was an accidental performer for one day and might not have ever known that his yeah. his photo was disseminated in that way. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. But it's a cool story. Mm-hmm. And I would love to own the stereo view, if not the original CDV of this Godfer from Gettysburg. It's one on my list that we're looking for. Every now and then, I like to note what a great sponsor SitHappens.us is for Strange Familiars. They were certainly our first regular sponsor. I don't know if they were our first sponsor ever, but they were definitely our first regular sponsor. You know, behind the scenes, they've done more than sponsor Strange Familiars. They've helped us at times, and they're just a really great company, and we love Tina and Sit Happens. Tina's a wonderful person, and we thank her for supporting Strange Familiars. So if you have a puppy, SitHappens.us. You look for that 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link. It's at the top of the page there. You can get help training your puppy, whatever issues they're having, whether it's potty training, fear, nervousness, barking, chewing on furniture or shoes or other things they shouldn't be chewing on, crate training, hyperactivity issues, mouthing and biting, leash training, and more. 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy can help you. It's not about forcing your puppy into some mold. (laughs) You and your puppy meet in the middle. You kind of become perfect for each other. It's a relationship-based approach to training. They have online sources, video lessons, a secret Facebook group. One-on-one options are available. Again, you can find them at sithappens.us. Let 90 days to the perfect puppy help you understand how your dog thinks and apply proactive training methods so you and your puppy can become perfect for each other. Sithappens.us. Look for the 90 days to the perfect puppy link at the top of the page. We should have saved the photo of the skeleton from World War One. I. I think we did for another Curiosity of the Week. That never sold. It's still up on Etsy. It's, yeah, it's still up on Etsy. That would have been a good one for this one, being as we were talking about remains and the battle dead and so forth. But we're going to do something like almost polar opposite. Oh, I like <laughs> that. I like a little levity after that. It's a little heavy. <laughs> this is a stereo view I came upon. I'd never seen it before. It's the fairy court. Now, it's not a photograph. It's a stereo view of, uh, I guess, a drawing. What do you think's going on there? Yeah, it's a photo of an illustration. But it's interesting how the sort of icicles are coming down. Oh, yeah. I mean, in the stereo viewer, it's going to have a really great depth Dim- of field. Dimensional and, aspect yeah. of it. Yeah. Oh, that's really fantastic, actually. Oh, I really like that. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a really neat little image. Delagtites. Of, 
of yeah, sort of or an ice cave or yeah, something. Yeah, it kind of looks icy. The fairy court. I thought it was a cool little scene. So if you like fairies, that's who a, doesn't? It's a nice little image from. Let's see if I can find a date on it. Eighteen seventy-five. It says in the reverse. Eighteen seventy-five. It says on the reverse, <laughs> according to Allison. Someone has been doing some math on the back here. I don't know why, but uh, some ciphering. Yeah. Someone's adding a lot of numbers mm. up on the back, and it's signed A.L. Dubois. I don't know if that was the photographer or not. It's part of the allegorical series of stereo views. But beings as we have fans of the Fae out there, as we are ourselves, I figured I would make this a curiosity of the week. The Fairy Court. Fans of the Fae. <laughs> I like that alliteration. The Fairy Court is stereo view. You can see an image of this in the show notes under this episode at strangefamiliars.com. If you click on that, it'll take you to our Etsy shop where you can purchase this. And there's a few other curiosities of the week left. There are a lot of historical photographs there now, antique photography, including some from the time of the Civil War. While you're on Etsy, you can get the regular short sleeve Strange Familiars t-shirts, the ones we always have with the Awoken Tree logo. You can get all of my books, including The Witch Cloud. You can get artwork prints of my artwork, and more. Our shop name is Lost Grave, but if you type in Strange Familiars, you should see our stuff come up. While you're on Etsy, make sure to check out Chad's shop, Ruck Rabbit Outdoors, and check out our friends at Karmic Garden as well. Speaking of the witch cloud, we are heading towards episode 300 now. What episode is this? 296, I believe. Oh, so we're getting really close. We're getting very close. Haven't talked about it in a while, other than just to mention that it's out there. It's a multimedia project. It's a hardcover book. It's a podcast. It's an audio book. It's illustrations. And I did some music with my friend Tara on our project called Black Happy Day, the first song we did in, I don't know, 15 years or something. So it's a, kind of a multimedia project. As I say, for our patrons, patrons get every episode of Strange Familiars, and I will release the audio to that to patrons in about a year. But the idea of this episode was to generate some income for the podcast, and also to make a multimedia project. We really want to encourage people to get the book and download and everything together. You can get it on Etsy. You can get it on the Stone Breath Bandcamp page, stonebreath.bandcamp.com. It's a hardcover book. It comes with a download, a patch, a woven patch of an owl, and a sticker. The book is signed, and the download is, again, I keep forgetting to add it all up, but I think if I did my math right, I think it's over three hours of audio. So it's the audio book with like the actual interviews clipped in. So I don't just read the text of the interview. I put the actual audio of the interview in there. If, if I, we talk about hearing a sound, if I captured that sound on the recording and I could pull it out, I clip the sound in so you can hear what we were hearing at the bridge. It's about these two haunted bridges in Gettysburg. One's John Eisenhower Bridge. It's an iron bridge built after the Civil War. It's known locally as Suicide Bridge and Sachs Covered Bridge. It's mainly about John Eisenhower Bridge, but they're so close together that you can't help but talk about one when you talk about the other. Which one is the one with the bats in it? That's that's Sachs Bridge, Sachs Covered Bridge, yeah. I'm really proud of it, and I really hope everybody picks it up. Again, it's called The Witch Cloud, Strange Familiars, episode 300. Don't forget to pre-order those Strange Familiars High Strangeness Tour shirts and hoodies if you want them. A lot of people are disappointed that they didn't get the mugs. A lot of people are disappointed that they, that they didn't get the keychains. You don't want to be waiting there when there's only extra smalls left. <laughs> I can tell you for like 
Exactly. Yeah. Get the size you want. Get, yeah. Go ahead and, and, and get them. And uh, of course, that helps. It's an awesome celebration of our on-site episodes. In fact, the on-site episode we're doing next week, I, I kind of wish I had time to throw that on the back too, because mm-hmm. it, it was one of my favorites in that, again, it was a needle in the haystack search and we found it. And I was just, it was just this amazing, like, we found it, we did it. It was a lot of fun. In any case, those shirt pre-orders, again, are at strangefamiliars.com. Look for the High Strangeness Tour shirt and click on that. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you like what we do and you want to become a patron and help us out, it's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. We'll be back soon with another episode of Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. Intro and background music is by Stone Breath. If you want to hear more Stone Breath or purchase music, you can go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com. Like I said, you can get the Witch Cloud there as well. Strange Familiars is on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, where you can join the Strange Familiars gathering group. We are on Instagram, at strangefamiliars, one word, and you can find us on the web at strangefamiliars.com.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save 